Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of ANC's Matters of Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. Okay, as we all know, the entire Philippine island of Luzon, the biggest island in the Philippines, is now under what the government calls an enhanced community quarantine. So that means there are different restrictions for the entire population in this island. And uh, according to health authorities, this is one important strategy or measure to make sure that the, the country, the Philippines, would be able to contain the, the, the spread of the COVID-19 disease caused, by, of course, by the, by the new coronavirus. Now, for today, we're going to talk about the, the so-called strategy, uh, which is intended to, to, to flatten the curve. So we're joined by, uh, by Dr. Ron Jean Solante. He heads the Adult Infectious Diseases and uh, Tropical Medicine section of the government-run San Lazaro Hospital in Manila. Thank you very much, Dr. Solante, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, thank you, Christian, for inviting me, and I hope I can help you and somehow dissect some of the uh, situations that we are now, based on my experience and also based on the current situation of uh, COVID pandemic. Yeah, actually, uh, Dr. Solante, a lot of people are thanking uh, experts or specialists like yourself uh, th- today, uh, people like you or experts like you are in high demand because of this uh, ongoing COVID-19 crisis. You are an infectious diseases uh, uh, specialist. First, let's talk about this expertise, this uh, specialization. Uh, what do infectious diseases specialists actually do and why are they important at this time during a, a pandemic? Uh, we are considered the the uh, gateway of uh, infection in terms of controlling infection in most hospitals. The usual work we do is always monitor the presence of uh, hospital-acquired infection. We also monitor the presence of community-acquired infections in our situation, in our community. And uh, we are also the gatekeeper of the use of antibiotic. You know, the problem now with antibiotic resistance, everybody uses antibiotic and our antibiotic resistance is really escalating. And this all, uh, uh, all of this needs an expertise that uh, will really serve to prevent and hopefully can also curb this uh, problem. Now, in terms of these emerging infections, this is also our, our turf because we've been trained to do this, especially infection control. We've been trained to treat and manage uh, cases like this. If you recall 1915 or 1916, we have the Ebola uh, outbreak uh, in some part of West Africa, and then it was repeated again, 2018. We were there, part of the uh, collaboration with government to prepare the hospitals for uh, infection control and manage such patients. And then I I think two years ago, we have also the MERSCOP. So this is really our work, and uh, uh, we always take this challenge to help uh, uh, hospitals. Of course, all doctors or all health uh, healthcare workers are very important at this time. But of course, if you talk about the specialization, uh, this is something I should mention: your turf, infectious diseases, right? Yeah, also, correct, correct. Also for the epidemiologists. Yes. Okay. Now, the, uh, how long have you been working, uh, or how, how long have you been? Uh, a specialist, uh, infectious disease specialist. Okay, so I finished my special subspecialty training in uh, 1996, and then I have had several uh, trainings abroad, okay, Japan, 
even uh, short courses of training on different types of infections like HIV, vaccination, including uh, dengue. And uh, in fact, my work now being affiliated with San Lazaro Hospital was really focused on the clinical diagnosis of management of HIV. Okay? Mm. But because of the uh, exigency to, to also tackle different types of infections, so I've been through a lot of uh, these infection diseases, being members of technical working groups in the Department of Health, even Asian and global uh, uh, advisory of uh, this particular nature of infection. Okay. Now let's talk about this uh, this uh, ongoing crisis that we have now, the COVID nineteen infection. Uh, is there something that uh, that is uh, th that surprises you about the way this particular uh, virus behaves? Yes, definitely. You know? uh, if you compare this with the previous outbreak or epidemic, like the SARS CoV, the MERS CoV, the Ebola. The, the control of each of those past infections was like very, very uh, decisive and it did not went into this magnitude of a problem that we're seeing now. That, a pandemic. Uh, yes, the pan a pandemic in pandemic uh, proportion. So this is something that uh, if I compare it with the last biggest pandemic was the 1918 influenza pandemic which killed millions of people all over the world. And I think this is now the second after that. Mm -hmm. so, so what's with this virus that makes it uh, fast spreading? Okay. Uh, if you because look at the day, yes. Uh, because people are saying, or, or experts are saying that this is not exactly airborne. Uh, it's spread through droplets, but how come it's highly contagious? Okay, so one, if you look at patients with this, there are three types of patients that are categorized with this infection. You have the mild, you have the moderate to severe, and then you have the critically ill. Okay? What's very interesting here is that this particular group of patients all across, they present with respiratory tract manifestation. Mm -hmm. So you go, you look at the how is it being transmitted? It's droplet. But if everybody, like if you are in the family, you, know, you are a family of 10, and you have also a neighbor of family of 10, and then one individual is coughing in that particular family, then that individual can transmit that infection to other members. But mm -hmm. the question is, will you suspect it's COVID? No, because the manifestation can be also the same as influenza, can be the same also as any patients with viral uh, respiratory tract infection or even a bacterial. So there's no particular symptom that will really show this is COVID and this is bacterial. So I have to uh, isolate myself. It's not because everyone will tell us it's a respiratory symptom. So the moment when we look at this uh, uh, symptom, the moment that we were able to isolate those patients with the COVID positive, it has already spread to the community. And if it has spread to the community, there's no way you can control that because even to the mildest symptom, you can transmit to the moderate to severe and even to the critical. Now, if you look at patients admitted now in the hospital with pneumonia, 
all of us are thinking COVID. So if you are in the hospital, always rule out COVID. But did we look at that two weeks, three weeks ago? No, it, it, it was not the case like that. We only mm. knew it when we have the test and we knew that all of those who presented with pneumonia in the hospital are COVID positive. That's why we expanded our definition that all pneumonia, either moderate to severe or critical, should be treated as COVID until such time they are negative with the COVID test. So this is the, the problem. It, it, it spreads like wildfire because of the uh, uh, efficiency of transmission. Basically, it's like uh, a disease or a virus that hides behind or is in disguise, presenting itself as a common, as a common respiratory problem, when in fact it's yes. already... Yes, correct. That, correct. that makes it very difficult to, to detect during the early stages, especially. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because but, every every one of us will just tell will just will just see it that oh, I have like I have this symptom two years ago or <laughs> six months ago I don't think this is COVID, bang it's COVID so I already infected my daughter I already infected my colleague I already infected my katulong or the or the kapit bahay, and that mm-hmm. those infected also doubles up because they also uh, infect the other persons who has close contact with them. And the problem is uh, there's no cure yet. Uh, there's no cure. So far. Yes, yes. But do we know enough so far about this, uh, this, this new coronavirus, this COVID-19 disease that is caused by that virus? Do we know enough about this, this virus, its behavior, its activity, to help us actually uh, uh, control it? Yeah, I think there there are enough information in terms of how is it being transmitted, how it can cause uh, severe infection in the lungs, why it can cause higher mortality in those with comorbidities, and how we can prevent it. Now, the only problem here is that we'll just have to wait until such time that less and less number of patients will be infected. And I think this is the important part here. The prevention of infection to a new individual is the key. How can we how can we do that? How can we prevent that? Okay, because the mode of man, the mode of management now is that we are only limited of what is what are we capable of, meaning because there are no actual treatment, there are no vaccine, so we are only limited like isolating the patient in the hospital and hopefully he will recover without those treatment or with the help of this investigational treatment. But the important part here, in the community, are we seeing transmission still in the community? That's another question because if we don't control the the transmission in the community, then we will still uh, still be seeing patients admitted because of respiratory symptoms. I think you're referring now to flattening the curve. This is what is, that's why we're now on an enhanced community quarantine. Okay, let's talk about this. Because you know that, uh, that the Philippines as a country, as in any other countries now battling COVID-19, they have a limited number of hospital beds. How will this strategy, this community quarantine, actually help flatten the curve? The principle behind quarantine is you isolate those with symptoms from those without symptoms. Okay? And you limit its movement so that those with symptoms will not also affect the next patient or the next individual just across the street or those in the neighbors. 
if he will be able to infect or transmit the infection, if it's just in the family, then so be it. Okay, that's why the the, the local government, the community, the barangay should be strict with this. Now, the other aspect here is that as much as possible, if you can take that out, that person out with the symptom and transfer him to a big facility where most of those are symptomatic with mild symptoms can be accommodated, then that's the other part here that we are looking at. Because even if you pull them out, even if you will say, oh, you wear a mask in, the, in, in, in your house, but that doesn't always mean he, wear, he wears a mask. He, he eats in the same table with, uh, with the other members of the family. He uh, uh, go around the, the area, even with the mask, but that doesn't always necessarily mean the other are protected. No? So I think the, the vital part here is the local government, how will they be able to decrease the risk of transmission from a mild symptomatic individual to the other members of the family? Okay. Now, uh, if my suggestion will, will be carried out, the barangay healthcare worker should go house to house every day and ask, are there symptomatics in your, in your, in your family? And once they will be able to identify this, then they have to identify a place in the barangay that where they can house all of these symptomatic and separate those without symptoms. I think that's the only way we can prevent or, or decrease the community transmission. So that's it. that is your suggestion during this enhanced community quarantine? Yes. House, through the barangay, yes. health. barangay but, health workers. But that is also dependent on the uh, honesty of the individual households, right? They have to be yeah. honest uh, yeah. about the it, symptoms you might mm, be uh, exhibiting. Mm, yes, because uh, that's, that's the reason why it has to be every day. Because if you do just do it one, once and one, uh, once every week, and uh, they always have that palosot, uh, no? Alam mo naman ng mga Pilipino para lang hindi mano. But it's also important to educate each of the family members. What is the implication if one member is positive, especially for a family with elderly, those who are hypertensive and those with uh, heart problems, because they are at risk also of severe manifestation. I think the Filipinos will really appreciate that. The only problem, yeah, the only problem if you are in a slum area, so that's big, that's a big area if you want to quarantine that. Have you actually made this uh, this proposal to, to the government? Because I understand that you were also among those who were consulted by the emergency task force on COVID-19. So I think they're very much open to suggestions like this. Uh, I have experience with uh, some NGO who are involved in the community, and I already gave this uh, suggestion. I was in close contact with uh, Congressman Janet Garin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they have a reported case in Iloilo. I think one 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 municipality there where the one patient died of COVID-19. That's why uh, I was supposed to be with her during the during last Sunday in order to brief the mayors and some uh, local officials on what to do uh, specifically how to go about in the community or barangay level quarantine okay and uh, another person like dr Ju uh, junis bilgar which who is also uh, working with local government barangay level in i think in pasig or Pasay, some, something like that uh, he, she had that proposal and i saw it and i gave my suggestion that if we really are serious with this 
I think this is the best time that we have to institute this strictly among our our barangay. But of course, they have to identify locations or areas within the barangay or the village where they can keep or isolate the patients showing. Uh, are, are you talking about patients? Mild, showing? mild, yes. Mild, mild symptoms, yes. Because uh, for moderate to severe, then they have to be admitted in the hospital. Why Why I'm saying this? Because, you know, the bulk of the the causes or the source of the infection now are coming from these mild patients. They're and they are coming from this mild and they are not isolated, okay? Isolated by saying, oh, just stay home. But are there persons to really inspect they are at home and they are in a specific room? No, we did not. It, it, I don't know if we, they can follow that one. And again, they can uh, say that uh, it's just a mild symptom of a regular flu, for example, right? Yes, yes. It's this, yeah. this killer, this killer of a virus yeah. is something that is nuts, right? Yes. So, so talk to us about the mild symptoms. Okay, so one, one of the most common mild symptoms is like throat itchiness. No? Some patients would like to tell us, I have some pain or difficulty of... Uh, like expectorating my saliva because there is something uh, obstructing my throat. No, so that's mm -hmm. that's sore throat. Some sometimes it can be just like my body feels so hard, so so heavy. I can't move. I don't know how to something like in early in the morning. It's really uh, it's really painful, but I don't have cough. I only have some irritation in the throat. That's one of the common symptoms. Or sometimes they will say. I don't have fever, but I feel feverish. Okay. Yeah. They feel they feel feverish, but you know what? There was a study done abroad. No, when this mild symptom, and they did a chest X-ray and a chest CT, there were already signs of involvement of the lower respiratory tract. In fact, some of them can only remember. I have body ache during the time they did a study on that, because the the problem here is. The gray area here is from the time that the patient is asymptomatic, claiming he is asymptomatic, to the time he has full-blown symptom. That's a gray area. Okay. And that, how, how long is that? Two to three days. Two to three days. And that gray area from the asymptomatic, and I would say it's not, it's not totally asymptomatic. They always have symptoms. Mm -hmm. They did a study on that, and they found out the, the, the chest X-ray, the CT scan, because a viral infection, even a normal chest X-ray, you cannot rule out a viral uh, a COVID. In fact, in in abroad, the CT scan is already just CT scan is already standard for us. But we don't have those resources here in the Philippines. So we get those data and apply those data in our setting. Like we have mild symptoms, separate, and then observe and monitor. So that's the best thing that we can do so far at this point. Yes. Yes. So, because people are also being, uh, a lot of people are being paranoid about their, their situation. You have to teach the people, you have to teach the, the individual how to detect when you are already in that zone, the gray area, that you have the symptom and you probably it's COVID and you have also at risk of transmitting this to, to your uh, family. So, you, you can always err on the side of caution here. Yes, yes. Assume that it's COVID, even if uh, it's not. Yes, because at this point, it's difficult to say you're not, I'm, this is not COVID, I'm feeling well, only a, short, a mild cough or a mild throat irritation. But look at that data. You have that symptom in those who are positive. So unless otherwise you were able to document that it's not COVID, then that, so meaning 
if you have mild symptoms, there's not much to worry because uh, if it's mild, then your risk of death is not that high, no? But the risk there is the risk of transmission. Mm, so you can infect. Yes. Oh. Konti lang na itong sintomas ko. Okay lang, dito lang ako sa bahay. Ganun, sasagutin ka talagang ganun pag iba barangay mo yan. But you have to tell them, why are we isolating you? Why are we pulling you out of your family? Para hindi ka makakahawa. Kasi if you can, if you will expose your family, yung family mo rin, they can have the symptoms. And what if uh, a family member of yours is uh, actually has uh, comorbidities? Yes, yun ang, yun ang ano, impact doon. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this type of information has been emphasized at the level of the barangay. Mm-hmm. So that explains your proposal for mm-hmm. each? Or yes, each for each. Oh. oh, ang sabi ko nga doon, like in one block, ngayong araw, yung one block na resident, hindi yun mo sila gather, but you'll just have to go there. But you have to be using your PPE, no? Take time in in talking to the families, no? Hindi yun gumabali. O sino bang may ubo dito? Sino? Ah, okay, sige, punta na ako sa ibang bahay. We should, it should be something like very calculate, cal- calculating in a manner na parang you just conversing with them, no? Oh. And then look at, hindi ka magmamadali. Kasi magmamadali ka talaga, sabihin, the text, oy may pupuntang ano dyan, sasabihin, kung may ubo ba, sabihin nyo lang, walang ubo, mga gano'n. Alam mo, lulusot, yes, lulusot tayo dyan eh. Mm. Now, for example, for people showing mild symptoms, let's say they're isolated, usually what happens to them, uh, does it necessarily progress into a severe uh, symptom or moderate symptom or they can be managed or, or the virus will just go away? Okay, now, COVID-19, in the data that we have gathered, is mild and self-limited in most cases, in most patients. Like 80%. Mm-hmm. So meaning, only 20% there will go into a severe form. And less than 10 will be critical. So who, whom are you going to protect? You protect those with mild symptoms so that it will not go into more severe and more critical. Okay, so meaning uh, you have to give them that information that you don't need to worry because this is self-limited. You don't you need to be anxiety because this is self-limited. But if you have comorbidities, no, if you look at the data of how many of those develop severe type, these are the 50 years old and above. Okay, these are those with comorbidities. These are those who are immunocompromised. Okay, diabetic those who have uh, 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 lung problem, chronic lung problem. And more or less, we were, this data alone is already a, a sign that if you have these mild symptoms and you have these comorbidities, okay, we'll pull you out of your house, we'll observe you in the hospital. But if you don't have these comorbidities, you'll just stay home and then that is self-limited. And of course, this will help authorities manage uh, the number of cases, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because I think one problem here is uh, we have a limited uh, number of uh, hospital beds, whether in private or government hospitals. And uh, what if, let's say, 80% of the population uh, actually gets sick, right? That's, that's, a, that's a problem here. Yes, yes. And uh, it, it, is, it is expected because if you look at what's the population of Metro Manila, like... Uh, More than 15 million. 15 million and... The capacity of the hospital, like the biggest hospital, is 500. And how, let's say, they have, you have 
20 hospitals with 500 bed capacity. So that's really a very low uh, number of hospitals to accommodate if a lot of these patients will develop the symptoms. So, so this uh, enhanced community quarantine, which is now in effect in the entire Philippine island of Luzon, this will enable the, the hospitals or the government to manage or to slow down the spread of the virus so they can manage those who yes. get Yes, right? yes. So, so how long before we can see uh, certain tangible results here? Yeah, that's uh, the biggest question that is uh, very difficult to, to answer. <laughs> because at the current rate that we are getting positive results, uh, I was counting since Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Yesterday, we have eight, 82, 92, okay? Yeah, so, actually, uh, as, of, as of March 24, uh, the total number of confirmed cases, 552, then 35 deaths. And of course, 20 have recovered. So, Here's the thing. There are 6,321 uh, 6, persons under monitoring and 615 persons under investigation. So that, that alone is really an enormous number of cases. So we're not yet in the uh, slope of the curve going down. We're still in the slope of the curve that it's going up. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, the uh, models that, that uh, somehow ex exhibited this, it will like take two to three weeks going up before it will plateau or will stabilize. Mm. And we are now uh, almost second week of the of the enhanced extreme uh, community transmission, and yet we're still in the up uh, upscaling slope of the curve. So we would expect probably two or three weeks that we will be having uh, this uh, upscale of of the slope, and fourth week, fifth week, then we can. We can evaluate if our if the if, if the community quarantine is really effective. So so basically, we're, we're it's it's still too early to to know whether this particular measure, the enhanced community quarantine, is actually working. Because yeah, yeah. it's still going up. The curve. It's too early. Yes, yes, it's too early, and I don't know if if we can predict when will that slope. We can be in the plateau, uh, part of the slope, or uh, going down or downscale of the slope. Hmm. Now, let's talk about the management of patients here because there's no vaccine, there's no, uh, there's no cure yet for, for COVID-19. So when someone is brought to the hospital, how do you manage that patient? Okay, so all patients admitted in the hospital, you have to classify them if you have moderate to severe or critical. So moderate to severe, those patients uh, needs close monitoring, they have difficulty of breathing, but their vital signs are still uh, stable. Critical are those patients whose vital signs are already uh, unstable. There are already involvement of the other parts of the body, like their kidney has shut down, their heart is also uh, decompensating, including the liver. So these are the critical. And if you look at the moderate to severe and the critical, those in the critical are 
the higher risk of mortality, especially if they need to be uh, attached to a mechanical ventilator, okay, which is a very important life support uh, uh, system in the management of severe respiratory distress among patients with COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, just to educate us, uh, lay people here, if, if a patient gets attached to a ventilator, does it mean that, uh, uh, of course, it has turned from bad to worse, but is it the end of the of the road usually for patients like that? Yeah, so I would I would categorically say, uh, based on my actual experience and also based on the papers that I have read no, and experience among patients with uh, severe respiratory uh, distress, the the patients who had who are on mechanical ventilator are is already an indicator of mortality. Because so meaning, breathe meaning, yes, because he can breathe on his own. And in, in, in effect, since we don't have treatment to really decrease the volume of viruses in the body, continuously destroying the lungs, destroying the, the other parts of the body in, in a very calculated manner, eventually, our immune system will be consumed and the overwhelming infection will be responsible for also the imbalance in our system that the heart cannot cope up, the kidney cannot cope up, and obviously the lungs is not any more functional because even if you put the patient on mechanical ventilator. But is it still also, however uh, remotely, is it, is it also still possible for a patient who was put on a mechanical ventilator to still recover? Say, he doesn't have the other comorbidities, uh, he's not as old as the other patients. Is it also possible? Yes, because the, the most important driving factor here of the response of the patient to COVID-19 virus is your immune system. Your immune system is the only uh, determinant of survival because that's the only uh, what we call this intervention within us in the absence of treatment that hopefully your immune system can cope up with the enormous number of viruses in your body. And that is why if you are an elderly, if you have comorbidities, your immune system is not anymore working in full 100% capacity, let's say 50, 60%, and then you have the infection. So again, it will be consumed. Comparing it with a younger individual without those comorbidities, and you have a 100% full capacity, every soldier of your immune response will be able to, to uh, 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 fight the virus. You should see a doctor right away. Yes. When you exhibit uh, moderate to severe symptoms. Yes. And what do you give them? Uh, because you, you cannot leave everything to the uh, immune system of the person, right? So, so how do you manage it? Okay. okay, so one is the IV fluid, no? so the intravenous fluid in order to put some water in the, in the system so that to prevent dehydration, to maintain mm -hmm. your, the volume of water in your, in your body so that your blood pressure will also be maintained. Okay? You'll be given oxygen so that the lungs can also function because uh, supplementary oxygen is needed. You'll also mm -hmm. be given antibiotic so that if there are superimposed bacterial infection, although not effective against the COVID virus, but at least you're taking care of the bacteria so that it will not facilitate and uh, in, uh, progression of the pneumonia.
Okay, because there are patients also have have co-infections like a bacterial mm -hmm. infection in the setting of a viral infection. And then if you are hypertensive, you have to be given drugs that will also uh, control your hypertension because if you are infection if you have infection, your sugar will increase, okay? Your blood pressure will increase. All of these comorbidities will be unstable. And if you will not control it, that can also add up to the uh, uh, severity of the uh, infection. I wonder if my illustration would be correct. So let's say a person has uh, certain comorbidities and then he got uh, infected severely by, by COVID, uh, by, the, by the new coronavirus. So in terms of management, you try to keep the other comorbidities, the other problems at bay, and uh, perhaps wait till the immune system of that person goes after the, the coronavirus? Yes, yes. Because so, uh, if you have comorbidities, that can also affect how your immune system will fight the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so meaning it, it can also diminish the, the ability of your immune system to fight the virus. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about certain so-called promising drugs that are being floated around. You see reports about these drugs on social media. Certain leaders or politicians are even describing certain drugs as a possible game changer. I think one that's, uh, that has been frequently mentioned lately was chloroquine. Mm. What is this drug and uh, will it actually help? Or does okay, it help? so yes, yeah, so these are coming from data, small number of patients treated abroad, okay, in which where they were given chloroquine and compared it to those who did not receive chloroquine. So they compared, no? So this group, they gave chloroquine. This group doesn't have chloroquine. They found out that among those with chloroquine, they significantly improved, and those without chloroquine significantly deteriorated. Something like that, no? just, to, just to illustrate to you. Now, so if this group of patients improve with chloroquine, then I would conclude chloroquine is effective. This patient, group of patients deteriorated and did not receive chloroquine because they did not receive chloroquine, they deteriorated. So that's the, that's how, that's the rationale of why they said it's a miracle drug, it's a game changer. But again, if you look at chloroquine, is it really the drug that can control or that can uh, decrease uh, mortality of COVID? It's still too early to to conclude, to give a conclusion, because the, the, we are still in there. Not, the, I mean, if you look at the sample, the number of people given chloroquine and those did not receive the chloroquine, there's not yet a significant finding that if you give chloroquine, all patients will respond to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. And you consider yeah. the other factors, right? Yes. Yes. So I think there are areas now that. Uh, since we don't have anything to give, and then we have observed that there are patients who improve with this chloroquine, why not give all patients chloroquine? So that's the, how the, the conclusion is being interpreted. And hope it works. Yes, and hope but, it works, okay. But ordinarily, uh, what is chloroquine for? Where do you use that? Okay, chloroquine is a drug for uh, malaria, okay? And it's... Uh, it's a form of drug that has also not been used already for malaria because of drug-resistant or chloroquine-resistant uh, malaria. Mm -hmm.
But is it, uh, can anyone just buy it? Uh, it has to have uh, coming from a prescription of a doctor because it, it also has a side effect. Like what? Uh, you cannot give it to any individual with a cardiac problem okay? because it can also induce a problem in terms of the rhythm of the heart, like uh, it can prolong the QT and it can cause uh, heart block. No? So that's the, that's the uh, uh, problem there. We have to select are there are there no contra, uh, are there contraindications in giving this because if there is contraindication then you definitely you should not be giving that uh, drug because the problem right now is that a lot of people are getting desperate and if you hear people say for example politicians say that this is a game changer this drug they might be tempted to to purchase it or to to try to get hold of it and self-medicate i think there was one report in the united states where a patient died because he self-medicated with chloroquine Yes, yes, because there are side effects. So we have to take it into a way, in a way that we have to interpret it with caution. No? If you hear this from one Viber group or news that patients are uh, doing well with chloroquine, then we have to validate. Are, are this really true information? Are this coming from a uh, highly sourced and highly uh, repeatable uh, articles? Okay. And then let's look at the number of patients being given, okay? Because that's also important in terms of the number of patients that are given. Let's take a look at how safe is this among those given, where there are side effects uh, during the time that this the patient received chloroquine, okay? These are the things that you have to know. In ordinary, uh, among ordinary people, what they're only looking at is the efficacy. But behind that, you have to look at, is it safe? Are there no contraindications? Okay, how good the drug is? Is it one hundred percent effective? Okay. Here in the Philippines, let's say let's talk about the the patients that you have managed or managing now. Uh, have you done that? Have you actually uh, given chloroquine in certain cases? Yeah, we have, and we only select those in which it is not contraindicated. Okay, for so those meaning, who do not uh, have. Uh, heart problems, right? Yes, yes. Mm. And did it work? There are those patients that it worked, but there are also patients that has, that has received the drug, but still they their pneumonia progressed and became severe, and eventually uh, they also died. Mm. Let's say so in the case for now, I don't see any any uh, significant difference. Maybe there's there's some benefit, but I would not say that. It's really a significant benefit uh, among, based on my observation among our patients treated with chloroquine. Because it's still too early to say because we only are giving like how many patients we have that are candidate for this. Five or six uh, COVID positive patients. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the situation in hospitals. For example, if it's in Lazaro or in the other hospitals that you are affiliated with, how bad is the situation in terms of handling and accommodating uh, persons under investigation, persons under monitoring, and those are actually uh, sick with uh, COVID-19. Okay, so the one of the important aspects in the management of COVID patients is that is your hospital capable of handling it? Okay, I mean, do you have the expertise to, to manage the patient? Do you have the uh, PPEs that mm -hmm. 
uh, can be provided to your healthcare workers, okay? And do you have the supportive uh, uh, gadgets, no? like the ventilators, the oxygen, and everything, okay? These are the important aspects in the management. Otherwise, if you are not fully equipped, then you have a higher risk that these patients will also die. Okay? Now, that question should be thrown to a hospital. Remember, not all hospitals are fully equipped. Some hospitals may be fully equipped, but they don't have enough manpower to take care of these patients. Because remember, in, mo in, a, in a hospital, you're not also taking care of COVID patients, but also non-COVID patients that will have, will get also better care because they're, they are also patients. So these are the things that you have to, to balance when you are caring for patients with COVID. And I think for now, uh, if you have heard in the news, a lot of healthcare workers are feeling fatigued, okay, desperate because the PPEs are uh, also uh, inadequate for them. And in fact, some of them are using extended use of this PPE just to make sure that they uh, take care of the patients. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the things that is really very challenging in this time of the pandemic. Speaking of uh, healthcare workers, uh, a number of doctors have already uh, passed away because of this, unfortunately, because of COVID-19. Uh, how exactly are healthcare workers, like yourself, how do you deal with these patients? And yeah, how do you because, deal uh, with infection? Yeah. Uh, healthcare workers are always the most vulnerable. Uh, uh, among the population because we are the ones taking care of every day. We are the ones seeing these patients, taking care of these patients. Every time you go inside the room, there's already a risk for, in, for exposure. Okay? Mm. And that's why PP is very important. How about those who are not taking care of the patients who are just outside? They're also at risk because when they go home, they can also be, they can also have other uh, individuals may be carrying the virus and that's where they can also be exposed. So if you're in the healthcare facility, your risk of getting the infection is higher compared to when you are in the community because in the hospital, you have actual patients COVID positive and these are also the source of the infection. So in a way, whether you're in the hospital, you're in the community, you're always at risk. That's why most of us already are PUIs and in fact some of us already succumbed to this uh, COVID because we are exposed to patients that initially we don't we didn't know that they have COVID. Example in San Lazaro, how many medical workers, doctors, nurses are already in isolation or under quarantine? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, no? uh, when last Sunday, last week, one of our consultants who is taking care of uh, COVID patients or part of our team developed symptoms of pneumonia. Okay, so he was tested, and he turned out to be positive. positive. So yes, positive for COVID. So he was isolated. He was admitted in our hospital. Now the big task there is, how many of those were exposed to him? Mm -hmm. So look at this. 14 days from the time he developed the symptoms up to the time he did not have the symptoms, you have to trace back how many of those that were within two to three feet 
of this doctor. In fact, me including because we are we we do rounds every day, we do table endorsement every day. So all of us, so we did the list, and we 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 stratify the list. So these are all we are all high risk. Okay, meaning high risk is higher risk of getting the infection because we have direct contact. Most of us are having cough, having sore throat, okay. and then so we plot. So like for example, 24. Out of the 24, 18 are symptomatic. So what will we do? So we have to be admitted if, if, if we're going to follow the algorithm. But mm. what's, what will be left to the, to the department who will now take care of the patients if all of us will be out of the hospital because we will be quarantined or will be admitted? So I was happy that uh, our test, we have tests now in San Lazaro, and all of us underwent that testing for COVID. If we really are, or if we have uh, acquired the infection from that consultant, and happily, all of us are negative. All okay. of you? How many? Yes, all of us. How many? Including doctors and nurses, I think around uh, 40. Patients. What, what about the, the consultant who who tested positive? How is he now? Uh, he's improving and I think he's still feeling a bit like tired and uh, he's always sweating. His complaint is always sweating and I think that's still part of the uh, uh, infection. But he, he's already in stable uh, condition. And another question here is, uh, let's say you, you got infected and then you recovered. Uh, mm. Can you get infected again and how soon? Now, the, that is an area that's yet we need to know, okay? Because uh, for one, the question then is, if you are infected, do you have antibody to protect you against a second infection? Mm. Okay. The second question, if you have antibody, that, does, does that antibody is lifelong to protect you against COVID? Okay. And uh, we don't know yet the answer. We don't know yet. That's why we need the vaccine. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, there's a demand. There are calls for mass testing now coming from different sectors. Understandably, because at the start, uh, we had this, uh, I think, four-week window in the Philippines where we didn't record a single COVID-19 case. But after those mm -hmm. four weeks, the number shot up. Mm -hmm. We're talking here of a super spreader, someone from Inhas, right? Then everything mm -hmm. uh, spread like wildfire, as you mentioned. That's why mm -hmm. people are calling now for mass testing. Now, mass this is testing. This is something that we can afford to do at this point. We know that we have limited success, even if there are uh, more than 100,000 testing kits uh, coming in. I don't think mass testing is the ideal uh, strategy to look at it. No? So I, I, I will still recommend selective testing based on the criteria that who should be tested. Okay. Why? If you do mass testing, even if you test, so meaning you're, you're also going to test those without symptom, right? Mm. Why will you test an individual without symptom that you would expect that 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 these patients or this individual will have a negative test, okay? So meaning I would still go to the selective testing based on criteria who should be tested because if they found out to be positive, 
they will be the person that will also benefit in terms of early intervention, being in the hospital. Or this individual should be isolated so that they cannot also transmit the infection. So that's just that's just my 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 point here. But what are the chances? Uh, let's say you don't have the symptoms and you had yourself tested. How likely or how probable that uh, you would test negative or positive? I would say very high. I would say very high. Okay, what do you mean? Let, let's say uh, I'm a patient with no symptoms and I had myself. Mm. How likely will I test negative? 95%. Mm. Because uh, one data, they did that. I think I have I have told you this that, that that gray area that they said I don't have symptoms but when they were positive they were they, they went back to the patient he already have some signs of symptoms and in fact that that one I told you they did a CT scan and he claimed that he doesn't have symptoms but the CT scan revealed a ground glass opacity so that means objectively he felt that he doesn't have symptoms uh, subjectively he felt that he doesn't have symptoms but actually he already had symptoms. I think uh, in our in our previous interview before, I think you were uh, you were referring to the case of uh, Senator Juan Miguel Zubiri. Yes. When he's, he was asymptomatic, <laughs> but he tested positive. And your your yes. your, your thinking was, uh, it was likely that he showed symptoms, however mild, but he yes. just didn't uh, feel that he had symptoms, right? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. So in cases like this, because people are. Of course, understandably, we understand that uh, people are going for or looking for mass testing because they want to know who among the population is actually uh, infected already. Because we're seeing a, a rise in the number every day. So right now, the the the, the running count is uh, 552 cases of, uh, as of March 24. But uh, let's talk about the, the process of testing. Is it something that can easily be done? Because uh, talk to us about the process here. Okay, so number one, we, we don't have enough laboratories to do the test. Okay, so meaning there are only very few select, selected laboratories. And at the current uh, testing uh, uh, site, it's only RITM. But now other hospitals are capable, like San Lazaro Hospital, no? and there are also the other subnational level hospital. So that is also the problem. If we do testing for all, then the laboratory, we don't have access to all of these uh, laboratory. But even if you have access, I will still recommend that testing should be on selected uh, basis based on symptoms. Okay, just to clarify, let's say we have, assuming let's say we have 200,000 testing kits. Does it necessarily transmit, uh, translate to the fact that uh, you can easily get results out of those 200,000 tests? Because again, you have a limited number of uh, testing centers. There's a big difference, right? Between yeah. a test and a testing center. <clears throat> okay. So one laboratory only are capable of doing a test one day, like 600 to 1,000. Okay. Okay. So meaning to meaning, you cannot do the test like 200 in one setting. So it, it's like 600, depending on the number of medical technologies or workers they have. No? Some laboratory who are still in the infancy stage of the testing, 
may accept like, okay, we'll just do 20 for now. Then tomorrow we'll reassess if we can do another 20. So it, it, this is the, the, the very slow process no? because we cannot do all of these tests. Like I will do 500 now. There might be some mistake. There might be some technical errors there that it, you might, the result might not be accurate. No? That's why the testing center is a slow process. I can do 20 now. Tomorrow I can do another 20. And then let's see for next week if we can do additional 50. So it's, it's, it's like stage, stages of uh, accepting the number of tests. And in terms of maturity, it's RITM because they've been doing the test for almost uh, already a month. No? That's why they, can, uh, they are now capable of uh, testing like 600 to 800 in a day. And that's already very helpful for us. But again, because of the number of individual being sent or specimen being sent to RITM, that's also something that there will be expected backlog of the specimens that will not be tested. Is it advisable for local governments to put up their own testing centers for them to buy their own testing machines? Like what the Marikina? Uh, yes. Has... Yeah, yes. In fact, I, I, I always welcome that if at the level of the local government, they are capable also of testing. But my only uh, advice then is that they also have to optimize their laboratory because it's not something like you just buy a TV set or a cell phone and then you put your cell phone there and then I'm ready to test. There are stages also when establishing a laboratory, especially at a, a, a testing center that requires a high-tech, uh, 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 high-tech, uh, what we call this uh, method. So you need also uh, expertise that is also unique for a particular individual to do the to do the test because it's not a routine test. No? It's a, it's a polymerase chain reaction. It's a PCR test. Oh, Inga, can you can you explain briefly that uh, that 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 particular process? Because right now people are also reading about <clears throat> uh, testing kits uh, online mm -hmm. to to turn in results after forty five minutes, fifteen minutes. Mm -hmm. Also, hearing of uh, a testing process that involves blood samples. Yes. Uh, okay. So the the current accepted method of the diagnosis of COVID nineteen virus is the use of a molecular technology, the polymerase chain reaction. Okay. So, uh, what is this uh, polymerase chain reaction? Uh, it detects the specific part of the virus directly and it will be detected in the machine. So we call it the PCR machine. The PCR machine will detect that part of the virus so that once that virus is present in our body, okay, using a swab, a throat swab, a nasopharyngeal swab, or an oropharyngeal swab, you put the swab in a, uh, in a tiny piece of uh, container and that container will now be transferred to that machine and that the machine will now detect the presence of the component of that virus. And that's why it will take around, uh, uh, depending on the ability of the machine to process that, there are those that it will take two to three hours or even uh, three to six hours, depending on the, the, the method that they are, they are using. And if you have that, uh, method, then you can also do what we call batch testing, like batch of 50 or 100. Okay, so in one run, running of the machine, you can have 100 samples being tested, and it takes like two to three hours. 
So three hours of 100, so meaning you can run only around 600 or 700 in in eight hours or in 24 hours. And meaning your medical technologist should also be on duty for 24 hours. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the, 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 the method now. You said blood. Okay, mm -hmm. what does blood? What is the test that you detect in blood? It's the antibody. So antibody is produced when you have a COVID infection, late part of the course of the infection because it's an antibody. Okay, mm -hmm. So it takes time, like five days, seven days before you get the result that you have an antibody. The problem with antibody testing is that Number one, delayed uh, result, uh, delayed uh, reaction because an antibody will be produced seventh, eighth day after the infection. What mm -hmm. if you test the patient on the third day and the, the antibody is negative? Will you say, ah, you don't have COVID because in the antibody test, you are negative? No, because you would expect antibody will develop seventh or fifth, seventh day. Mm -hmm. you, you get this, Christian? So that will give you a false negative result. And a false sense of security. Yes. Yes. The second important aspect there. What if you are not also immunocompetent? Your immune system is, is also very low. Mm. So you, do, you don't have enough antibody to, to produce. So it cannot be detected with a kit, with a test. So that's again a false negative. Yeah, you're already exhibiting symptoms, but if you do that uh, antibody test, you would turn out negative. Yes. So it's dangerous to actually make use of this uh, antibody yes. test. Yes. It's not advisable. You're not advisable. Well, thank you very much for the for those clarifications for enlightening us on things that we need to know about the COVID-19 uh, crisis here in the Philippines. Dr. Ronchi Solante, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you guys take care there in San Lazaro and all the other hospitals where you are affiliated with. Thank you very much for joining us, Doctor. Yeah, thank you, Christian. And uh, again, thank you for this opportunity to inform uh, our uh, viewers. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Catch us again next week for another edition of the Matters of Fact podcast.